where liberty is our mission. Today is Sunday, November 30th, 2014. This is podcast number 385. And with me on Skype is my sometime co-host, Kai. Hi, Kai. Hello. And it's a little bit fuzzy. We have a little bit of a bad connection, but that's it's better than the connection we tried earlier. So we're going to roll with it. So I apologize for the bad audio. I want to mention. Sorry, Michael Dean. <laughs> I want to mention that uh, we're going to be having some changes around the first of the year. We're looking at shutting down the pay section of the forum. Uh, I I kind of consider uh, the forum a complete failure on my part because I set it up with the intent of spending time over there chatting with people. And as it turns out, I am just completely burned out on forums, and I just can't force myself to get over there and use it. So uh, I really have let down the audience with the forum. So we're just gonna we're gonna kill the pay half of it, and we're gonna open it up, uh, and with the intent that eventually, over the course of 2015, we'll delete the forum altogether. Um, also, we're going to change around the format on the uh, the main Bad Quaker website, and it's going to look more like an archive. And I think by 2015, I probably won't be doing any more podcasts uh, at the Bad Quaker site. It'll just be a, a sort of an archive site, and I'm going to focus more on the work that I'm doing with the Freedom Fiends. We're now on 35 radio stations across the country, and that's growing. And um, I think it's, you know, and part of this is is health reasons as well. Uh, My health has deteriorated, I can tell, pretty significantly. Not my physical health, you know, I'm I'm strong in that sense, but in excess of 35 concussions over the years, my brain is getting foggier and foggier in the format of doing a podcast specifically by myself is becoming a real burden. I can I can play off of another person in conversation. I can do that pretty well. But to try to formulate an hour's worth of just me speaking is becoming really burdensome and uh, clumsy for me. So I, I think in 2015... We're, we're going to see that uh, go away, and I'll just be trying to support the Freedom Fiends with their radio show until, uh, until that thing kind of gets more on its feet, and then, uh, and then maybe back out uh, from that as well. So, um, but that's not the topic for today, and neither is what I'm about to say. You know, I did a, a sort of a critique on an old uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe article uh, like a month ago or something like that. And I got a little bit of flack from it, and uh, I invited uh, Stefan Kinsella to come on and explain uh, 
uh, Hoppe's uh, uh, version, uh, I allowed Stefan to just kind of speak his mind and and let him represent Hoppe because I've I've tried in the past to get a hold of Hoppe and I know he's a very busy man and he's retired and he's living in Turkey and there's all kinds of reasons why he wouldn't have the time to come on my show and I and I understand that I'm not holding anything against him for it but Stefan was kind enough to uh to take uh, Hoppe's position and try to defend it and to be honest at the time, I was having a real foggy brain period, and I couldn't really present uh, an argument against Stefan at the time. But afterwards, going back and, and reviewing it, I was reminded of something that Frank Charteroff said, and this was way back in like the late 50s and early 60s. And so I want to read some of Frank Charteroff's statements uh, uh, from back then. He says, the oft-used statement that we owe it to ourselves in relation to the debts incurred in the name of the state is indicative of the tendency to obliterate from our consciousness the line of demarcation between governed and governors. Charteroff also went on to say, of a, of a piece with this kind of thinking is a companion phrase, we are the government. And then he went on to explain, if we are the government, then it follows that the man who finds himself in jail must blame himself for putting himself there. And the man who takes all the tax deductions that the law allows is really cheating himself. See, he's saying that we are not the government and the government's actions are not our actions. We're victims of the government, plain and simple. That's what Frank Charteroff believed. And I believe that. Um, Unless you are actively part of the government, in which case you are the problem. You are the thief, yeah. Right. So right. by, by like, logic... I want to make sure that that's pointed out. Like, if you're a cop, or if you're one of the military thugs, or if you're, if you're actively a part of the government, then you are the government. Yeah. Like, you have assumed responsibility for that by putting yourself in that. So by and then it does fall to you. So by logical deduction... If we are not the government, and if the debts that the government incurs are not our property, they're not the the property of the victims of government. If the debt is not the property of the victims of government, how can those same victims claim ownership over public property simply by being the victims of the robbery? And so this was the argument uh, uh, that I staged against Hoppe. That, you know, um, I've made the statement that any so-called government property is actually unowned property because the government can't actually own anything. And Stefan uh, made an argument against that, and, and Hoppe clearly doesn't, uh, doesn't agree with me on this. But I've made the argument that, let's say, the police, the window of a police car is unowned property. The, uh, the monuments in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere are unowned property. The vast millions of acres of Western land claimed by the government is unowned property. And Hoppe seems to, uh, and, and if I understand Kinsella as well, Hoppe believes that these things are owned by the taxpayers, that somehow the taxpayers, let's say the people who have paid taxes within the United States own you know, like the the monuments in Washington D.C. and the cops' window and 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 this kind of thing. But the problem with that is, uh, well, uh, let me get back to my notes because I'm going to address that in a minute. 
Okay, so the idea that U.S. taxpayers own property claimed by the U.S. government, well, non-U.S. taxpayers don't, assumes that there's a difference between one government and another, when in fact there is only one state. There is just the one state worldwide. There's there's the 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 imagination uh, allows us to believe that there are all these different governments and they're all at odds with each other. But the fact is, there's only one state, and that appears in the human mind and nowhere else. It's just a figment of the imagination. It is not an actual thing. You can't walk over and touch government. It doesn't exist. It only exists in the minds, in the myth of the state. And there's only one of them, and it's worldwide. And eventually, all these petty little governments are going to start to conquer each other and unite and in, in, in come close to at least within you know i mean this is just logic you don't have to you don't have to be a a, a prophet to see this it's just logical that these governments are going to absorb each other until they eventually get down to the point of where two or three are are fighting on a worldwide scale to try to dominate each other because that's what governments do um okay so en- enough of the prophecy into this um okay now finally government doesn't actually rob us with taxation. Now, let me just say that again, so because this is going to kind of sting to some listeners' ears. Government doesn't actually rob us with taxation. People rob us under the guise of government taxation. When you look out and you see the cop car driving down the street, you're not seeing a representative of the government. You're seeing an individual thug that robs people that lives off of the wealth and the labor of other people. That guy is the problem. Now, I sure. think that's a Im- really important thing for people to understand because so often I hear this rhetoric from uh, liberty-minded folk that, you know, we're, we're against the government, but we're, we're for the people in the military, or we're for the cops, or we're for... You can't be. You, you, you can't. Those are the same thing. Like, that person is the full embodiment of the state. When that person decides that they can put on that uniform and take that gun and do what they want in the name of the state, that is the state. That person is the state. Like, there's no, you can't separate that out from the two. They are the same thing. There's this really weird thing among libertarians (laughs) where they reject collectivism except when it's convenient. Then they embrace collectivism. And it's it's really frustrating because you know okay each in, it's a it's a it's a cornerstone of libertarianism that each individual is responsible for themselves they're responsible for their own action and they have no business telling somebody else how to behave I own my, I own me that's like a foundational thing of libertarianism and then we want to refer to the state as some kind of a collectivist. Uh, a being that's out there that uh, some kind of a mystical thing that that all of a sudden collectivism is real but no the cop driving down the street is the thief that's the guy who's the thief the mayor standing in front of the news camera that guy is a criminal he is a gang member he's a thief he is the guy who will enforce his will upon you by gunpoint if necessary it's individuals that's not a that's not a bad thing like that gives us hope for destroying the state because when you take it away from some mythos some god figure some some high holy standing in his temple in Washington DC and you look at it as no i'm fighting the state and the state resides in that human being who lives next door exactly then all of a sudden it's easy 
it's easy to destroy the state. It, the, the model's been set out for thousands of years on how to destroy the state, which is get along with your neighbor and interact in a voluntary way. And if people are not interacting in a voluntary way, do not allow them in your life. You know, I would love to see a world where people began putting up signs on their restaurants, no cops allowed. We don't serve cops here. Yeah. We don't serve anybody in government capacity here. No, your business is not wanted. You know, at the grocery store, I'm sorry, no, we're not going to serve you. You are a cop. I'm sorry. No, you know. Like, I would love to see that. That is the way to destroy the state. You just remove it from your brain, and then the shining beacon of that will remove it from the people around you. One of the beautiful and things. And one by one, the light of the state goes out. One and of the, the market be- for the state goes out. One of the beautiful things about libertarianism is that it's, it's, it's really, really simple. I mean, you have the right of property and you have the zero aggression principle. And everything else flows from that. And it's unbelievably simple. And sometimes we get down and we argue about silly little, you know, how many libertarians can dance on the head of a pen or whatever. Sometimes we get into that. But the the elegance of libertarianism is in its simplicity. Now, let me just present a challenge for anybody who thinks that we all somehow publicly own um, the police car's window. Okay? Let's just imagine the window of a police car. Now... Attempt to explain to yourself. Don't, 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 you know, don't email me or write to me or yell at me or, or whatever. Attempt to explain to yourself how the math would work to say what percentage of that window you own if you have paid every tax demanded of you over the course of your entire life. Then consider the billions of people around the world who are also taxed. Now, Write out what your percentage, do the math and figure out what your percentage of that window is on paper. Show your work. Write it down. Now what I'm asking here is absurd. It's, 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 it's silly, right? Because the quantity of math that it would take to figure out something like that is incalculable. And that means it's not libertarian. Because there's nothing about libertarianism that requires reams and reams and reams of paper and pencils to figure it out. That's not libertarian. Libertarian is plain and simple, black and white. It's it's aggression or it's not. It's theft or it's not. It's my property or it's your property or it's unowned property. There's there's no vast amounts of paperwork and, and mathematics to try to come up with libertarian answers. It's real simple. Who owns the window? I don't own it. You don't own it. Nobody owns it. Plus, plus, you have to you have to remain morally, um, you know, you have, you have to be consistent. If then you own the window as a collective, because collectively your money has been stolen to pay for that window, you have to understand that the money that has been stolen from you has gone nowhere near that window. Like, it disappears as soon as it hits the IRS. Like, your money does not exist. Your money has not paid for anything. Your money is absorbed into the national debt immediately and does not even make a fraction of a dent into it. And so if you acknowledge responsibility and say that the money that has been stolen from me 
is still somehow my responsibility, then all of that debt is your responsibility as well. That's what Frank Charteroff said. And so that, that's the moral compass. That's the moral, you know, consistency there. If you accept the, the, the pros of, take, of paying taxes, then you must also accept the negatives. Now, is it morally okay for somebody to say, I've stolen money from you, I've spent too much of it, and now I'm in debt, but because it was your money to begin with, you're really in debt, so you should pay me more. No, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous, and you wouldn't accept that from anybody. So why did you accept this from this collectivist idea that, you know, because all of society says so, then it must be true. Like, that is morally inconsistent. It, Once money has been stolen from you, you have no say in it one way or the other. You owe, you owe no part of it anymore, except to get recompense back from what was stolen. Only from the person who stole it, though. There's no collectivism exactly. acceptable here either. So, so the cop, so, you know, you, you can't go to one cop and demand one eighteen thousandth of a penny from him for the, for the amount that the collective has stole from you and go to another cop and demand one eighteen thousandth of a penny from him and go to the senator and ask one eighteen thousandth of a penny from him. It, the, the whole concept is ridiculous. So, you know, if Charteroff is right, which I believe he was, we don't own the public debt. We don't own, we don't, we're not a part of government. Government is not our responsibility. We, we, there is a wall of separation between the thieves and the victims. And we're on the victim's side. And what the thief does with his stolen money does not affect us on this side of that wall. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get to the uh, topic of the day, which is what we were really going to talk about, which is, um, uh, what's happening in Ferguson, Missouri? And I've kind of tried to not make the podcasts, uh, you know, news relevant so that it's just a, a rehashing of what's on CNN or Fox News or whatever. Um, but there are times when this podcast has been, uh, relevant to a specific time frame, like back in, you know, 2011 and 2012 when I was saying, look, folks, Putting money into Ron Paul's campaign is a waste of your money because they will never allow Ron Paul to go to the convention. They will never allow him to have a speaking spot at the convention. They will never allow his delegates to function at the convention. And if by some weird chance that did happen, they'd just shoot him. And and people mocked me and people didn't like me and people unfriended me back when I was on Facebook over statements like that. And then... What happened in 2012? They cheated. The Republicans cheated in the primaries, state after they state. They shot Ron Paul. <laughs> no, that would have been too obvious. But oh. they, but they cheated state after state, and it's been heavily documented that they cheated. And then they got to the convention in Florida, and what do you know? They wouldn't let Ron Paul on the stage. They wouldn't let his delegates vote. They wouldn't let him come in and, and make any kind of a, a a movement, even though he had all those delegates that he had collected. All that was thrown out. They changed the rules on the first day of the of the convention and and pretty much excluded him by those rule changes. And and you know, and it looked like to the general public that wasn't paying attention, it looked like Ron Paul was never in the running at all. And in addition to all that, just months before the the actual convention took place, Ron Paul's stinking, dirty son 
comes out in support of Mitt Romney. Oh, shock, shock, really? How could that be? Oh, but Rand Paul is so yeah. Uh huh. That's what he did. And yep. And you could go back if you could if you could wind your way back through time, back in the days when I was on Facebook and talking about this stuff. It's all exactly what I said was going to happen. And then the podcast that I was doing at the time where I got so much heat from the Ron Paul people, and yet that's exactly what happened. And so what was Ron yep. Paul's impact in the 2012 election? It was non-existent because the, the election's fake. Hey, the election's fake, and votes don't matter. Okay, so anyway, that was a rant. It's all made up and the votes don't matter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so that was a rant that was just, uh, just to point out that normally I try not to do a, you know, blow by blow news stuff. But, uh, so we're going to talk about a little bit about Ferguson today, but we want to talk about it not in a moment by moment, what's happening on the street now type of a thing. We want to talk about it as Ferguson as a symptom of what's going on in America. Not, not that, oh, well, racism is the problem. No, it's not. Well, police. No, cops murdering people is a problem. Well, no, even that's a okay. symptom. That's just a symptom of what's going on. Will Will Grigg, which is a guy that I really like a lot, uh, made that statement on Lou Rockwell recently that the problem is not racism. The problem is out of control cops. Well, no, that's not true. It's like it's like um, right now in the United States, more and more and more people are turning up with celiac or celiac-like symptoms, which is, explain that, Kai. Oh, well, uh, it's... Yeah, <laughs> Maybe I should explain. Okay, look. So you put me on the spot because my, my views have changed significantly on food. Um, there have been several major studies that have come out of Europe showing that there is no... Like actual studies, not funded by Monsanto studies, like real life scientist studies that show that there is no such thing as celiac disease and there's no such thing as a gluten allergy. Um, do you know about uh, wheat being sprayed with um, Roundup like a wheat? Yes. Okay. Now that is different. Okay, so, so let's go into that. So what's happening is um, you have a farmer who's growing wheat. And now, first off, this is a completely different breed of wheat than existed 40 years ago. Um, it's, yeah. a, it's a type of wheat that has been specifically crossbred in a way so that it is sterile and it cannot reproduce itself. It's a seed that, can, that, is, that cannot reproduce itself. And it contains um, uh, elements, naturally occurring elements, but they have crossbred in order to increase these elements that cause the seed itself to be resistant to insects. And that means it's poisonous. Okay, so now we have a seed that is somewhat poisonous to begin with and harder to digest. And then as the wheat grows, um, you get... In a plant that was already fairly difficult to digest yeah. for humans anyway, which is why traditionally it is... Uh, Helped along with the use of fermentation. Right, right. Okay, so so now uh, as the farmer is growing his wheat, one of the age-old problems for a farmer is when do you sow and when do you reap? Because this depends so much on the seasons and the weather 
and all these different things that a, f- a farmer's crop lives or dies on when he s- when he plants and when he reaps. If he plants too early, his his year can be lost entirely. If he plants too late, again, his year can be lost entirely. That's why calendars were so important to uh, to Stone Age man. Why he would put such vast efforts into having an accurate calendar like Stonehenge or whatever. No, there's no aliens involved. He needed to know when to plant. And among all the people in society, the people who knew what day to plant were thought to be almost magical because they had information that was critical to society. The farmers had to know exactly when to plant in order to get the season correct. And the more northern you get, the more critical that, uh, or southern, I suppose, the more critical that balance becomes because the season gets shorter and shorter the further north you go. Okay, so today... Nowadays, we have all kinds of uh, ways to know the weather and the date and all these kind of things. We don't have to rely on on mystics or magic or, you know, Stonehenge or whatever. Now you just look at the calendar and see what day to plant, except the weather still changes every single year. So if you if you can tell exactly when to plant and then if you can time your harvest so that you know that you're exactly when you're going to harvest – then you can you can produce the 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 largest crop that is attainable from that field. Now, one of the problems is if you harvest wheat while it's still a little bit on the green side, it will gum up your machinery and you won't get a full harvest from it. So you want to harvest wheat when it begins to wilt, when it has finished its season and it begins to wilt. The problem is all of those different plants all throughout, it's it's just like the collective problem we were talking about a second ago. Every one of those individual plants, thousands and thousands and thousands in a field, are individual plants, and they're all times slightly different. So how do you go through and make sure that all the plants wilt at the same time so that they're slightly wilted when you harvest them? And the answer is you spray defoliant on them. You poison oh, them. Oh, yummy. Yes. And essentially what we're talking about here, folks, is Agent Orange. Boy, it sounds like you're just beating your phone to death, Kai. I hate to, not even moving. I hate to go all Michael Dean on you, but every listener is going to argue with you on this. It sounds like you're throwing your phone against the wall. No, see, it sounds like you keep getting further away and like you're down a tunnel. Okay, so anyway, back to the not topic. Not my fault. So back to the topic. Um Essentially, what the farmers are doing, what the wheat farmers are doing, is they are spraying Roundup on the wheat just like a week before harvest so that it, so that it burns it down. That's the phrase that they use. It burns it down. Roundup essentially is Agent Orange. Now, we know from experience what Agent Orange did to the people of South Vietnam. We know from experience what Agent Orange did to a generation of American soldiers that were in Vietnam getting sprayed with that stuff and then coming back here and dying horrible deaths of cancer and other diseases. We know this. And yet, farmers, wheat farmers in the United States spray their wheat crop with Roundup the week before they harvest so that it all burns down and so that it all wilts so that it doesn't clog their harvest machines and so that they get a bigger harvest. And the Roundup does not wash out. The Roundup penetrates all the way 
into the heart of the seeds and is and remains chemically you can test it it's in the flour folks you are eating roundup it's not celiac disease it's not in the imagination it's not it's you are eating agent orange every time you shove that sandwich that big mac down your throat you're eating agent orange yep well and it's 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 all it's not just wheat like that's and this is something that frustrates me a lot is it's not you can't just say oh well it's this or oh well it's that it's the entire food industry as a whole every single part of it is is infiltrated with this horrible nasty stuff you know it's not just wheat you go and you eat strawberries and they literally have round up ready strawberries but the strawberries themselves are impregnated with the D, with, with in their DNA with Roundup. It's in their DNA. Like, same, same with corn. The, the, yeah, same with corn, same with all of these products. And so it's not just, oh, well, I'll just stop eating wheat or, oh, well, I'll just stop. I mean, you wonder why you're never getting better. You're never getting better. You're never getting better. But the answer to all of it is to know where your food comes from. Talk to the people who make your food, you know, and when you begin to pull yourself back to that level, then all of the problems that you were having with being in a corporate system fall away, all of them, you know, and you can say, oh, well, you know, well, money and this and that and the other, but what's important to you, you know, like I know farms personally where you can go and volunteer for you know, four or five hours a week, and you can get a farm share for that. You know, it's not, you, you, you have to think outside the box in terms of how to get yourself out of this horrible, fascist, statist way of thinking. Because as long as you're walking into Walmart with no money, you are part of the problem. You are feeding the state right there and then, you know. And I understand that it's hard you know, and I still go to Walmart. Nobody's perfect, you know, but you try and you bring in that mindfulness and you say, okay, what can I do to make sure that my money and my effort and my work and my whole being is directed towards not the state, you know? And and what we're talking about and, is getting to the root of the problem and hmm. not being distracted by the sy- symptoms. Exactly. You know? Uh, the state resides within you, and until you kill it in you, you can't kill it in anybody else. I was talking to someone recently about the situation in Ferguson, and they said a very disturbing thing to me. Uh, this person said, you don't understand those people in there are animals. And and I realized that's a, like a horribly racist statement. But the reason that the person misunderstood the situation and said that is because he has been trained to believe that. He's been trained over the course of his lifetime to believe that there's this vast difference between white people and black people and that and, – and part of, the, part of the, the, the story is, you know, well, they're burning their own neighborhood and – you know, as information starts to come out, we find out, well, actually, you know, like the church that was burned, the predominantly African-American church that was burned, there's a good likelihood that KKK people went in and burned that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
in other cases, like it, well, it's a lot more complicated than just they're burning their own neighborhood. But in a bigger sense, this, every aspect of this that we're talking about are symptoms. They're the result of a, uh, they're the harvest of, of seeds that were planted a long time ago. And they have nothing to do with the individuals being black or white or anything else like that. It's not a cultural problem. It's not a racial problem. It's that these things, the, the seeds of this were planted long ago. And, and that's, I, I kind of like to take this in an odd direction. You know, um, in the late 1800s, 1870 to 1890, uh, central planners in the United States had a problem. And they actually used the terminology I'm, I'm going to use. It's going to sound like Nazi terminology, but actually the Nazis learned it from these guys that I'm talking about. They had a, the Native American problem. They didn't call it that. They called it the Indian problem. And the Indian problem was that there were people living on land that they wanted. They wanted that land for timber companies. They wanted that land for railroads. They wanted that land for farming. They wanted that land just because they were greedy and they wanted it. And even if they'd never do anything with it, they still wanted that land. I mean, you think about it. Why would you chase Cochise all over New Mexico when there was nobody living in, New, relatively speaking, there was nobody living in New Mexico. And even today, New Mexico is almost vacant. Why would you spend all that effort chasing Cochise all over New Mexico to try to kill him and try to, to round him up and cage him when there was well, essentially nobody there? About, yeah, it's not about the land or the, the gold or the anything. It's about owning people and not allowing people to be free. Exactly. Cochise was free, and you can't have that. You can't have a whole civilization of people living free. It, it's intolerable in a totalitarian society. And that's what was developing uh, in the United States in 1870. And so specifically, yeah, it is. So specifically, I'm talking about William Tecumseh Sherman. And right now I uh, ritualistically spit on the ground at the mention of his name. And Sheridan, Sherman and Sheridan were, were controlling. Uh, Grant was the president at the time, but he was just pretty much an idiot puppet. But Sher Sheridan and Sherman were controlling the United States military in 1870. And it was their stated goal to exterminate the the Indian population, but they knew they couldn't actually exterminate them because there were too many of them. So they had this Indian problem, and they were looking for a solution, a final solution to the Indian problem. Now, anybody who's, who has studied Nazi history knows that this is the exact terminology that the Nazis used in reference to the Jews. They had a Jew problem, and they needed a final solution. So, so not just Jews, undesirables, because that. Yeah, yeah, because there was gypsies and other people as well. Yeah, but uh, Sheridan and Sherman had this Indian problem, and they were seeking a solution to the Indian problem. Now they came up with a very and and. and the two guys that we're talking about here are brutal murderers, and there's just no way you can describe them as anything else. Sheridan was a, just a horrific monster of a man, and Sherman was worse. And so their initial solution was just, we'll just kill him. We'll just kill him. The problem is, you, and this is going to maybe go against everything Hollywood has ever portrayed, 
But the U.S. Army couldn't do the job. They were incapable because any time an actual pitched battle came up between uh, the United States Army and the Indians, typically the Indians won. You you couldn't fight them like that. It was impossible. Fairly fairly significantly, too. Yeah. It wasn't just like, oh, we we, kind of won. We won that one a little, but we had no, like they won. Yeah. So how do you fight an enemy that defeats you on every battle on every battlefield? Well, you don't fight them on the battlefield. You go and you eliminate their food source and you burn their villages. And that's how the United States military fought the Indians you, in the 1800s. And you teach their children to be dependent on you. Well, yeah. You, eventually, you do that. You. Um, so that's what they started doing. They started giving handouts in order to lure them into coming into the reservations. They offered a free, easy life to come onto the reservations, and they began to target any uh, any leadership or any um, you know um, alpha males, uh, and and not only kill them but kill their whole family. And so they reduced the population of the of the Native Americans who were uh, naturally resistant to this, and they lured in the rest of them into reservations with promises of free food and free housing and free clothing and all these things. And eventually, that's exactly what they did. They they rounded them up like cattle into feeding lots, and they pacified them. And they neutered them, and all the time they forbid them from having alcohol. Now, when you, and this is key to this conversation, they they forbid the Native Americans to have alcohol, and yet they got it anyway because, like anybody in any prohibition situation, if you want that substance, you'll get it. But by pro, but but by prohibiting it, you create a criminal element among the users. So you create criminality in order to control the people. Prohibition is not about the substance being prohibited. It's about creating a criminal element to control the people. That's exactly what a prohibition does. So it worked really well. They rounded up the Indians. They put them into controlled spots where they could where they could keep control of them. They put fake leadership in. They took the the, the drugs of society. They took the worst of the Indian population and they elevated them and made them the leaders. Falsely made them the leaders. Then, by prohibiting alcohol, they created a society of addiction and criminality. And by about 1920, they were entirely successful. There were no native population left in the United States that were not subdued. It was mostly done by 1900, but there were a few scattered that were still um, that were still a problem up until about 1920. All right, this works so well with the Indians. I mean, think about that for a second. This process worked so well to subdue an entire group of people, to get them addicted and to control them through substance abuse, through addiction, and through the criminality of alcohol. This is what they did, and it worked. And so in 1920, do you know what they did? They turned the process on the American poor. They prohibited alcohol, and they began the process of rounding them up into cities. From all the way through prohibition, if you were rich and well-connected, alcohol was not a problem. You could get alcohol. 
But if you were poor, you were forced to go to the criminal element. You were forced to be a slave of the criminal element in order to get alcohol. And this created a wealthy criminal element from from 1920 to 1932 or whenever it was that, that Prohibition ended, 2032 or 33, I can't remember now. Anyway, now this worked. It worked in the sense that it huddled people into the cities. It huddled the poor, I should say. It huddled the poor into the cities where they could essentially be slave labor. And it created a criminal element to control them. And then the thing kind of fell apart, but so did the economy at the time. That was the 1930s when the, when the Depression hit. And so the government then outlawed another substance. They started with uh, marijuana, and then they just added to that and added to it and added to it, heroin and, and others, until they could get uh, – and, and, and the thing kind of fell apart for a while. But eventually the process was to introduce – uh, in the 19, it started in the 1930s with Social Security. Again, we're going to make the people dependent on government handouts while outlawing substances and huddling them into controlled areas. Now, I hate to say it, but African Americans were essentially the secondary targets after the Native Americans. In the 1920s, most of the people huddling into the cities were African American. There was a great incentive for for black people to move away from the country and into the cities. This was the explosion of Harlem and uh, Chicago and Detroit. There was all kinds of jobs created in the inner cities, and and, and black people kind of focused into those inner cities. And in the 1950s, White people dispersed from the inner cities and moved into the suburbs. And the, and now we start to have – segregation was really hitting heavy in the 50s. And by the early 1960s, welfare kicked in and started rewarding people in the inner cities not only to be dependent upon government but also started rewarding young women to – had to not have to depend on a husband to be able to have children without depending on the husband. This freed up the husband I, from his responsibilities. Not, not just the husband, I'd like to point out. The, the entire family unit, because it, it, it's really not even just about uh, uh, parents. It's about extended family and the idea that you no longer have to be supported by your extended family. You You can derive support directly from the government. You don't need, well, I need my mom to babysit, and I need my aunt to babysit. No, you just you put them in daycare, and that's subsidized, and you have the welfare check, and that's subsidized, and then they go to school, and that's subsidized, and you don't need a family. You can do it by yourself, and that is not okay. Like, you do need a family. Like, human beings are so social that we have to have a family unit, and it doesn't have to be a traditional family unit. But it has to be a family unit. Like, that is a structure that is so needed in society. And that's, that's why Social Security was the first step in that, because that took the old people, and, and they no longer had to depend on their families. And the families yep. no longer had to, to support the old people. And so Social Security was the first step in this trick. Well, not the first step, but it was an early step in this trick 
of dividing the families, of making it so that a family didn't have to have one other room for grandma and grandpa. They could essentially be free of the burden of grandma and grandpa. And that was a step in dividing the families. And then in the 60s, welfare was the next step. And it it hit it hit misproportionately into the black society, into the black communities that were already in, that had already been huddled into the inner cities. So now we have, just like with the American Indians, we have black people being pushed into the inner cities, lured in at first with with jobs, but then as the jobs start to dissipate, welfare comes in and keeps them in the inner cities. So now they don't have to live in a family structure, in a traditional family structure. They don't have to depend on their families. They don't have to depend on jobs. They can live in the inner cities, remain addicted with addiction rates just going crazy, and more and more prohibitions being put upon them. You can't own guns. You can't own this substance. You can't own that substance. Your car has to be like this. You can't, you can't have your house like that. All of these things you restricting. You can't braid your neighbor's hair for money without this permit. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that, that that's one of the many things that has hit disproportionately hit the black communities far worse than the white communities, is that traditionally uh, small neighborhood barber shops and small neighborhood beauty salons used to be an aspect of inner city black culture. And now... You have to be, you have to have a permit. You, you have to be permitted to do that. Now think, let that sink in for a minute. I can't cut my neighbor's hair for five bucks because I'm not permitted. Yeah, and if to get the permission takes more hours than you can even begin to comprehend, like you literally have to go to school. And there are some places where it takes longer to become a hair stylist than it does to become a nurse yeah and you're paying you're having to go into debt to pay for that school and who owns the school tricky so so what we've done is we're talking about a process that's been going on since 1870 to take out of society certain undesirable segments now the nazis tried it by just rounding up everybody they did it really quick they did it in 10 years and it backfired on them but the Americans Well it's so efficient. <laughs> the Germans are efficient people. Subtly. But the American people have gone through this slowly over a hundred and fifty year period and they're not noticing it. They're not seeing what's being happen what's been happening to them. So the Indians were first taken out of society and they were first herded into these small patches where they were allowed to live and they were supported by government money and and government subsidies and they were um, prohibited from certain substances while those substances still rained down upon them in, in abundance. So addiction, prohibition, government uh, uh, support and herding into one spot and it worked so well with the Indians that they started doing it with the blacks. And it works so well with the blacks that by 1970, pretty much the vast majority of black people lived in the inner cities and they had this this burden upon them 
that the government had, uh, the government was, was successful. And I shouldn't just say the government because it's not just the government. This is a bigger thing than just government. It's the elites that control the strings of government. And they, and so they, they first eliminated the, the, the Native Americans. The Indian problem was solved. Then the black problem was solved. And folks, I'm telling you, the poor white problem is exactly like the Indian problem and exactly like the black problem. The poor whites, the same thing is happening. Now, they're a little bit harder to round up because they're scattered out. They haven't been concentrated through generations like the, like the Indians were, like the blacks were. But the poor whites are being systematically taught to be dependent upon government for all of their income. They are being manipulated through prohibitions. They're coming into the prison system, getting enough of a record that they're coming back out without the ability to own guns. They're being limited on the jobs that they can, that they can have because they have a prison record. And they're being worked in really low income, not, not, um, not like real close to poverty level, but not quite poverty level. They're being allowed to work jobs that pays their, their essential bills that they have to pay. And yet they still have to have, you know, uh, um, food stamps to, to make it. They, they don't quite make enough to really survive independently. They, they work and they work 40 to 60 hours a week and they still can't quite make it. And why is that? Because, there's this huge consumer culture that says your value is based on what you own. Your, your worth is based on what you have. And they're being fed a steady stream of, if you don't own this, you're not good enough. If you don't own that, you're not good enough. Nobody's going to love you if you don't own this. The, your partner is never going to be with you for all eternity unless you buy her this giant diamond ring. Like, there, it's a constant stream of buy, 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 buy. And, and that happens to blacks as well as the poor whites, because in the inner, if you go into inner city, what you will see is you will see people walking around with gold. You will see uh, cars that are just elaborately, you know, very expensive for the level of income that they have. And it's not all drug money that does this. It's people. Sometimes it's hardworking people that think it's necessary to, you know, to have a bunch of gold things hanging around their neck, and and they think it's necessary it's to so drive a BMW. Affordable. Yeah. You know, you can go, you, you just go to, and get a, a loan and then you pay it back week by week and it doesn't seem like you're paying a lot of money because it's over time. But if you go into you the know? poor white communities, you see exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not a BMW with, you know, with, uh, with spinners on the wheels. Instead, it's a four by four. Well, it might be. Well, it could be, but it, but most of the time you're going to see, you know, a four by four that the guy has got, uh, you know, $50,000 invested in a pickup truck and and he feels but like he has to have that in an office and doesn't use a pickup truck. Yeah. The thing, anything. the thing never goes off road, you know, but he's barely making it between his, between his, you know, uh, um, a lot of people don't know this, but it, let's say you get arrested for a, a, a marijuana charge. And let's say that it's significant enough that you have to spend, let's say, two years in jail and you've got two years prohibition. Uh, pro <laughs> um, <laughs> not prohibition. Anyway, 
Probation. <laughs> Probation. Words. You're confusing, <laughs> man. So, so you've got two years that you can't get caught doing anything wrong. You spent two years in jail, but a lot of people don't realize that the whole two years you spent in jail, you have to pay for that. The, um, this is a very complicated process, but while you're in jail, if you need toothpaste, you have to pay for it. If you need a toothbrush, you have to pay for it. And if you don't have somebody on the outside constantly sending you money, which probably the people that you have on the outside are struggling to make it without having to support you. So the whole time you're in jail, you're running up a bill. And when you get out of jail, you're given a card that is essentially it's it's your it's your uh, like a it's like a credit card and it's banked by it's backed by the same set of banks that that own all the rest of all this stuff. And you have a loan that you have built up while you were in jail and you have to make payments on that. And if you don't make payments on that, they'll come after you because that's a part of your being released from jail. So it's just like a debtor's prison. If you don't pay it, you go back to jail. So you have this 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 loan that you've built up while you're in jail. Then in addition to that, because of all these other things to do with welfare, you probably got child support payments. And if you don't make those child support payments, again, they'll pick you up and arrest you. And they'll label you as being a deadbeat dad. So, so you've got your prison payments that you have to make. You've got your child support payments that you have to make. Then you've got rent and you've got all these other things. So even if you've got a decent job or what's considered a decent job, you probably still have to depend on government handouts in some way or another just to make it. And then like you were saying, you waste all that money on flash that you think is important because you've been taught that it's important. And you run yourself up deeper and deeper in debt, and you go into white neighbor in, in, into what is considered the poor whites out, you know, out in the country. And what you see is um, these uh, payday loan companies and these um, uh, places that do loans on your uh, uh, your car. What's it called? Uh, title loans. Title loans. Yeah, exactly. And these guys are thriving, and they're everywhere in pawn shops because people are buying stuff that they can't afford and then they're pawning it or they're buying a car that they can't afford or a four-wheel drive pickup that they can't afford and then they're or the rental the, the rental where you can rent yeah. essentially a whole house full of furniture and electronics you just rent it yeah they think they have to have that giant tv Exactly. They think they have to have that giant TV, so they rent it, rent to own, and by the time they end up paying the thing off, first off, it's completely useless because it's five years old and uh, it doesn't work anymore or it's you know out of date or whatever and they have to buy a new one. Um, and they've paid three or four times for it. I, I see commercials all the time on TV for this one company where they say, oh, my budget used to be so mean to me, but now that I found this company, they'll loan me anything for anything, and I can buy all this crap that I don't need. Yeah, but you're paying like four times for it. Be and you're not any happier. No, that stuff doesn't right. make you happy. And you all it down, does... You watch this giant big screen TV, and all you get is this feed of... The world is awful, and there's war everywhere, and, and the, why? Why are you doing that to yourself? Like, and, turn it off. Walk away. And now let's, let's take this to Ferguson. So what happened in Ferguson is exactly what was designed to happen, and it's going to happen more, and it's not only going to happen in inner cities with black people. Keep in mind... And some people are talking about this. I mentioned Will Grigg earlier. 
that kind of brutality that you saw in Ferguson or that we saw in uh, Beaver Creek in Ohio or we saw in uh, Columbus not, or uh, Cleveland, Ohio, not too long ago where they just shot the little boy. This kind of stuff is not just happening to the black communities. It is happening equally in proportion to poor whites. It's just not on the radar yet. It's on YouTube. It's not hitting the the mainstream media because it's not newsworthy to the mainstream media because it doesn't serve their purposes yet. But right, it, will. it doesn't fit their agenda. Exactly. Now, right now, it's popular with mainstream media to swarm into an, a community like Ferguson, especially if there's some question about whether or not the shooting was justified. Because there are... If you want to talk about police brutality, the thing that happened in Beaver Creek is a lot better example, a lot better documented and a lot clearer example of cops just executing a black man than it was mm-hmm. in Ferguson. In Ferguson, at least it's it's kind of fuzzy, like like it could have gone either way. We're not really sure what what happened. We've got everybody's got an idea of what happened, but we don't actually know for absolute certain what happened in beaver creek there were cameras filming it we have the sound recording we know that the guy had the had a a toy gun with the barrel pointed at the floor and the cops screamed at him to drop it he said it's not a gun and they shot him anyway now that yep. for some reason that doesn't have the legs behind it why is that because it's too cut and dry it's too clear Nobody can look at that and say, well, it's the black guy's fault for holding a toy in the store that sold the toy. Yeah, in the same store that sold the toy. He picked it up right off the shelf of that store, and yet the cop shot him down like a dog. So, so that's not a good case for the, for the controversy that's required. The Ferguson case is perfect. Not only is a, a, um, a more intensely black-white confrontation between the all-white police and the all-black neighborhood. You don't quite have that in Beaver Creek. Um, not only that, but you have a fuzzy situation where there's no actual recording of what happened and we can have a controversy over, did this happen or didn't it happen? Did he have his hands up? Didn't he have his hands up? And then you have weird things added to this, like the fact that the police didn't follow their procedure. Do you know about, uh, Kai, I don't know if you know about this or not. When, um, when the shooting took place in Ferguson, instead of following procedure, which the procedure is for another cop to show up, take the firearm from the from the cop who's the shooter and bag it as a specimen you know as evidence then right. the other cop is to take the shooter cop to the police station photograph him photograph any or or hospital if he needs to go to the hospital photograph him photograph any evidence of any damage that might be done to him like if he's been punched or whatever do mm-hmm. do all the photograph of that. If he needs to go to the hospital, the police is supposed are supposed to take him to the hospital. Um, he's not supposed to wash the blood off of any of his clothes or his hands or anything until it's been sampled, and until the and the clothes are to be removed. And he's given other clothes, and the clothes are all supposed to be preserved as evidence. Now this is standard procedure in all these situations. Right. Then a, re- a report is supposed to be done. The shooter cop is supposed to do a report within if if he's physically able to within the first 48 hours. And then the other cops are supposed to re- do their reports about, you know, what they know took place. Now, none of that happened. The cop drove himself back to the police station, washed up, put his own gun into evidence himself 
which means it's tainted. It's not. It's no longer evidence. Right. So right. since he washed himself, since he changed his clothes, since he put his gun in, in evidence, and since he took himself to the hospital, none of that is admissible, admissible evidence. So literally when it went to the grand jury, they had no uh, none of the basic evidence that they would normally look at to decide. So they literally right. could not, considering the evidence, they could not come up with the suggestion to convict him or to prosecute right. him. Because all the evidence was destroyed. And who destroyed it? The guy who shot. Now, now yep. this is, all of this stuff is bizarre. And then. So at the very least, he should be indicted for tampering with evidence. Yeah, he should have been. Um, now, in addition to all that, the chief of police comes out immediately and says, well, there was a struggle and, and uh, the cop was beaten and had his eye socket broke. And then he switches stories and says, well, he, there was a fight and he struggled and he was punched in the jaw and his jaw was broken. Well, now all that turns out to be a lie. Every bit of that turns out to be a lie. And then there's the evidence. Well, there were, the gun fired at least once inside the vehicle and went through the door. Well, that's not evidence that there was a struggle. That's That could just as well be called um, cops are stupid and don't know how to handle their guns. Because we've seen right. that over and over and over. So the fact that he shot and through his own point, well, the the allegation is that the that the uh, that the kid stuck his head into the car and tried to get the gun out of the holster of the cop, and there was a struggle there, and the and the gun somehow came out of the holster and was fired into the door, and I just can't imagine any person being stupid enough to stick their head into a cop's window and attempt to grab the gun out of a cop's holster. I, I just, you know, they tried that story with the Boston shooting thing with the Boston bomber yeah. and I don't buy it for a second. I don't buy for one second that anybody would reach in and try to wrestle the gun out of a cop's holster when they're sitting down in a cop car that just, there's no part and of that that makes sense to me. And if that were the case, there are so many ways to disable a person that trying to then also reach for your gun that this person is fumbling for and having it. No, just punch him in the face. Roll up your window. Roll up your window. Do something. (laughs) Practice is good gun ownership. Like anything, so anyway, but going back, because we're kind of getting distracted by the by the noise. So then we had the media hyping this announcement for a month before the announcement took place. We don't see the media hyping anything to do with the Beaver Creek shooting. But we do with the one in, in Ferguson because it suits their, their needs. It fits what they want to do, their agenda. And Plus, I have a theory that there is no better way to start violence in an area than to call in the National Guard and stage armed guards to prevent violence. Like, yeah, if there is no seed of violence, putting a person who is armed and in military clothes standing there saying, don't be violent, is the way to put a seed of violence in someone. Like, that, there is no better way. And then the day that they announced what the what the jury's uh, the grand jury's verdict was they waited until prime time in the evening after dark to make the announcement <laughs> now 
anybody who knows anything about crowd control knows that it's much harder to control a crowd after dark, especially if it's a rioting crowd. It's much harder to control them after dark than it is during the day. So if you don't want violence, what you want to do is get the National Guard in place first, then make the announcement at like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning or something so that you have all day to control everything. And students are in school and people who work are at work. Right. And, And so that's what you do. But if you want to stage something in a way that you get the biggest possible TV audience and you have this take place at a time when you absolutely can't control the crowds, then do it at prime time at night. That's, that's, that's how you do it. So yep. in every way, it was clearly staged for the purpose of creating a violent outbreak. In addition to all that, 700 guardsmen were put in place by the governor of the state, and he had already uh, called for a state of emergency before the announcement. He had 700 guardsmen, not in Ferguson, but in the next town over, kind of sitting around on their thumbs doing nothing. When the announcement came through, the mayor of Ferguson had already requested that those 700 guardsmen come into Ferguson, and they didn't. Somehow, their orders were to sit still and don't do anything. And so when the announcement was made, there were no guardsmen present. And there was a delay getting the 700 guardsmen there. On top of that, the fire, now there's fire uh, brigades all around in the different towns around Ferguson because it's all the greater St. Louis area. And it's pretty much endless city for miles and miles there. And so uh, when the fires started that evening, guess who didn't respond to the fires? The firefighters. The fire departments stood down and did not respond to the fires. And the fire departments from other communities that were just, you know, two minutes driving away were not called in to support the area. So the firefighters let the fires burn. So the cop presence was very weak because they didn't have the support of the National Guard. So they're not going to go rushing into a place where they're burning stuff because the local cops are basically donut eaters and they're not fighters. So the local cops were afraid to go in. They didn't have the guardsmen to support them. And the fire departments weren't answering the calls for fire to put the fires out. Now, all this is a formula created in order to make a spectacular thing that the news media can cover and make a big deal out of it. And now the predominantly white uh, elites can point at that and say, see, that's what black people do. And they're yep. creating a racist situation where a racist situation is not necessary because there are white people being killed by the cops the same way in white neighborhoods. Yep. It's happening. It's just not being covered. This is not a war yep. against black people. And the black people are being fooled into thinking that they're, that they're being picked on because they're black. No. And the white people are being mollified by thinking that they're not being attacked. Yeah, exactly. You know. It's not happening like, to me. The whole, this is the whole, well, they came for my neighbor, and because I wasn't Jewish, I didn't say anything. Well, they're going to come for you. They're going to. Like, at a certain point, they're going to come for you. And at what point do you say, you know what, I don't care who they're coming for, they're not going to take any of us, you know? Yeah. Like, at what point do people stop and put aside? And that, that irritates me a lot. That's a trick of the state that I think 
people fall for on a routine basis, and it's the us versus them mentality. It's the my team is better than your team mentality. Exactly. And you have to get over that. Like, you have to just say, no, I'm not on anybody's team. I'm for the human race, and all of us as humans are equal. Nobody is better than anybody else. Nobody is more deserving of anything than anybody else. And we are all in this together, or we're going to kill ourselves. Yeah. Like, there's no other alternative. So, how do we top all this off? Don't fall for it, man. Believe none of it. You know, and to me, it's very frustrating because if you read history, and in specific, if you read, like, if you go through the social history of, of any particular place on the planet, all social groups in humanity say the same thing. In order to have a healthy, productive human society, you have to have individuals who are happy and fulfilled and have a strong family structure and have a strong social structure and are voluntary in your interactions. This is how you create happy humans and a a successful, productive society as a whole. And then people don't do that. Like, Every single religion says this. How do you attain happiness and peace and oneness with the universe and, and, and oneness with your God? And all of them, all of the prophets of every single religion ever known to humanity say the exact same thing. And, and when you look at how societies that function well work, they work off these principles. You have to have voluntarism. You have to have peaceful interactions with your neighbors. You have to have non-coercion. You have, you have to. And that's the only way to do it. And it's not hard. You just stop thinking that you are owed anything that you have not worked for. Just stop. And stop buying the and, lie that it's us against them. Uh, yeah. It, it is us against it's them in the us. sense that it's all of us who are victims of government against those who are government. Yeah. Well, and if you believe in the market, and I believe in the market, if you believe in the market, then there is only one way to get something off of the market, and that's to remove the demand for it. Yeah. It's the only way. Like, you cannot restrict the supply of something. That will not work. You have to remove the demand for it. And so if you want the state to go away, the very first thing to do is to remove the market from the state. Like, take that away from yourself. Take every ounce of supporting the state and love of the state and, and adoration towards the state. Remove it from your core, and then you're free. And there's, there's a who line that I absolutely love, and it, it's in the song, um, I'm Free. And he says, you know, Messiah's pointed to the door. No one's had the guts to leave the temple. And that's how you, that's how you become free. And every Messiah has said it. You just go. Stop bowing down to the altar at this, and you are free. And that is how you are free. Like, stop bowing down to the altar of the state, and you have removed one more person from the marketplace of the state. And one by one by one by one, eventually the state will collapse because there's no market for it anymore. 
And it's nonviolent, and it works, and it's proven to work, and that's the only way that you can get rid of the state. And anything else is falling for the lies and the tricks of the state. And that's what it all is. It is lies, and it's sleight of hand, and it's tricks and manipulation, and it's all just... You know, Hamlet's advice to Ophelia, I said this a second ago, but I didn't say who said it. Hamlet's advice to Ophelia when it was... when. All her world was falling apart. Her father had been killed. Her boyfriend was going crazy. The kingdom was falling apart. There's murder in every direction. Ophelia didn't know what to do. It was totally overwhelming her. And, and, and Hamlet said to her, believe none of it. Believe none of it. Now, she couldn't do that. She allowed herself to be overwhelmed, and she ended up committing suicide. And that's kind of what our, our, that's, that's kind of where society is at. If you're gonna believe this thing, if you're gonna believe what the media feeds to you, if you're gonna believe what the government feeds to you, if you're gonna believe this entire lie, then the answer is societal suicide. Humanity will mm-hmm. end. But you have to understand that it's all an illusion. It's all a lie. It's all deception. And believe none of it. And when you do that, your mind is free, and you and then you can see truth. It's it's just like you said: walk out the door of the temple, leave it, walk away from it. Don't buy the lies. Yep. And when you do that, you are free. Yeah. And, and you know and that freedom can't be taken that, away. So simple. That freedom it can't, can't be, be taken, taken away. away. Yeah. <laughs> like it can't be. Well, let's wrap it up. Uh, anything else you want to say before we finish? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I can say this. I like being in Alabama a lot more than I like being in Ohio in the winter. <laughs> hey, I am warmer right now in Ohio in the winter than I was in North Carolina. <laughs> It was cold in North Carolina, but then I was living outside there, and I'm living in a house now. So that plays, that plays a big difference. It does. It has a tendency to, to change things. Well, folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much, folks. Thanks, Kai. <laughs>